and welcome to Connect with Causeway. I'm your host, Therese Malby, Vice President of Strategy at Causeway Solutions. We're happy to welcome back our VP of Insight, Tim Dewar. Hey, Tim. Hello. Great to be back. I am also joined by our Manager of Strategic Partnerships, Lauren Kornick. Welcome back, Lauren. Hey, Therese. As always, our goal is to simplify the sometimes intimidating world of data and discuss how you can use it positively to impact your marketing and business goals without getting confused. Today, we're going to continue to talk about personalization, but we're going to focus on how you think about your audience before you start to target them and create segments. In our last episode, we focused on the importance of segmentation, and that still continues to be important. But what we didn't really talk to you about is where you start. So while segmentation is the micro view of targeting, today we're going to look at the macro view. This is a really important first step that we feel warrants discussion, and that is what we will talk about today. And knowing that we need to have a discussion, I know that Tim will have something to say. For better or for worse, you know I always have something to say. But yeah, on this topic, I really think it's it's important to consider that there's a really essential first step of a campaign is take that macro view of your audience and get a better understanding of who they are as a whole before you really start honing in on that really tight segmentation. For example, what we're going to talk about today, I hope, is some conversation of sometimes you got to figure out who you're not going to talk to is just as important as who you will. And so while really a segmented audience so often focuses on who should be included, what I really want to talk about more today is who shouldn't be included first and then going from there. And I think when we talk about that piece, we'll really lean in towards our Causeway strategic matrix. And the strategy matrix does a great way of defining those groups of who's likely to take an action, who's very unlikely to take an action, and how does that all play out? So if everybody can pause for a second and think in their mind of looking at a Jeopardy wall with Alex Trebek or your favorite current host, whoever it may be. Um, But if you picture that Jeopardy wall across the top, you have all the different categories. And that horizontal running across of the categories really is what we would call an ideology or beliefs. So we're picturing that matrix left to right is the horizontal of what does somebody believe? And then top to bottom, so in our Jeopardy analogy here, that, that your dollar amounts, that's really that, that vertical plane is how likely are they to take an action? And once we can start visualizing this giant grid matrix up there like that, you start figuring out that everybody in the country falls in different places, depending on what topic we're discussing. In terms of examples, I think for the first time ever, politics is easy and straightforward, <laughs> at least when it comes to understanding the matrix. Uh, We've kind of got a regular formula down of organizing those squares in that matrix in a certain order for every campaign or candidate we have, creating an estimated number from each universe to get to that 51% victory number. And we found that it's very easy, duplicatable, and easily understandable. I don't think you have to be a political scholar to understand the concept of a high turnout swing voter. We understand it and our clients understand it as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Lauren. I was actually just recently at a conference and you know, rule number one is in public, never discuss politics. But this is one time where I very much went to a political example. Because in politics, you're right, it, you know, the horizontal, you know, the categories of the Jeopardy board, that's your party affiliation. You've got people on the far right of politics, the Republicans that are on the far right of the grid. You know, people refer to the Democratic uh, Party as the left. Right? They're on the left of the grid. And you automatically have this idea of the further left you are, the more you tend to agree with more democratic ideals in the Democratic Party, and that's where you're tending to vote, the more far right, more on the Republican side. The reality is they're both a spectrum, right? People are somewhere in the middle, even though it's hard to admit these days, there, there really is a, a gigantic perspective from left to right there. 
But I think the real reason it becomes very easy to use politics as the example is you look at the, the vertical axis and that's their likelihood to take an action. In the instance of politics, the action in almost all cases is very clear when we're describing these things. It's your likelihood to place a vote. You know, somebody who does not vote in any elections at all really is at the bottom rung of that Jeopardy board, right? They're at the bottom. The people who vote in every election, no matter how small or large it is, are on the top of that matrix. And when you picture that, it really changes the whole dynamic of who should be targeted and by whom. Hey, Tim, I'd like to interject a public service announcement for a moment, which is if you subscribe to the podcast, you will have received an example, a visual of this matrix, because I know for some people it's a lot easier if you can look at it. Otherwise, you can also find that on our website or in our social media. So back to you, Tim. How does this help to find an audience? <laughs> well, I'm going to stop thinking about my favorite Jeopardy categories now and bring it back to the matrix. So so once we define the matrix, it's great. Again, left more likely to be Democratic, right more likely to be Republican, top more likely to vote, bottom not likely to vote. So then the key becomes who can any single candidate start figuring out who they should or should not be messaging from that conversation? Well, if I'm a Democratic candidate, the far right of that matrix are going to be strong Republicans, so the left of the strong Democrats. Right away, that takes out about 25% of the market for any single candidate running for office. There's 25% of people just purely on party preference that they can take them out. The next group that somebody would want to remove would really be the people that are very unlikely to vote, which means they're on the bottom rung. And if you're very unlikely to vote and you do not have a strong party affiliation, you fall right in the dead bottom center of that grid. Now, that is the party that those people are going to get some broad campaign messages because of things that are on TV or billboards, et cetera. But neither party really wants to expend their marketing dollars on anything focusing on that group that has really no strong affiliation to the party and a very low likelihood to actually vote. That That's really not where they want to put their dollars if they could avoid it. So right away, doing that math, any campaign basically takes out 25% of people that are not likely to vote for them because of party affiliation and about 15% that are not likely to vote for anybody and have no strong party affiliation, they're alone 40% of the audience is completely removed from a targeted messaging campaign. And that really helps some of this marketing efficiency. The opposite is true as well. So there's people who won't be won over, but there's also a threat of kind of overindulging people with a message of people who are already on your side, right? Yeah, correct. I mean, that's the other piece of a picture that Great again, the strategy matrix, the people in the top right box are already those that are highly likely to vote a Republican candidate. So top right, highly likely to vote Republican, top left, highly likely and highly likely to vote for a Democratic candidate. You got about 15% of people that fall into those buckets. So while they're so likely to be one, you might want to avoid over messaging to them. The message doesn't need to be focused to them because they are very strongly in your camp. Maybe you want to reach out and say, hey, do you want to volunteer? Do you want to campaign for us? Things like that. But they certainly don't need a please vote for us messaging. So the end result is now you've taken 40% of the audience out saying we're not likely to win them over. Take about another 20%, give or take, out to say we don't need to message them because they're probably likely to already be on our side. And you're left down with 40% of the country that each party would identify as their targets. Okay. In general, I get it. But I'm doing some math here and I just have a question. 40% of the voters are in the group that likely won't be won. 15% are likely already won. 40% are the targeted group for each party. Multiply that times two parties. It's way over 100. I'm not going to tell you the number because I don't want you to judge my math, but help me. 
<laughs> yes, you're right, Therese. And while each one, each party can easily figure out who they definitely can count on and who they can't count on, there's about 25% of voters that are going to fall directly in the crosshairs of both parties running for a campaign. These are the people that are highly likely to vote, but are certainly in that swing. So, you know, a hard turnout group, but they really have no affiliation. For better or for worse, they're going to want to avoid all social media as much as possible because they are the group that everyone is going to be trying to reach out to. They're ready to hit the polls, but they're not quite sure who they're going to vote for yet. Got it. So then you take this matrix of the entire country or whatever your broad audience is, and depending on your goal, you're picking these universes who are persuadable or likely to act. And then you bring in that funnel we talked about in a previous episode, and then that becomes your custom target segment. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that is truly a much, much more efficient way to approach the marketing. Like we said in the beginning, you get to start macro. You start big with something like the strategy matrix to figure out who falls into the likely bucket to, to be able to be persuaded. But then after that, you start moving through some of the demographics, other things to, to more narrowly focus your audience. So I think one of the big things that just transition away from politics as fast as possible here, but in political campaigns, this is kind of commonplace, right? The goal is we know who we're not going to win. We know who we can count on. I think that's really a challenge in other industries. And I've seen that firsthand where others think more impressions are better, or you start thinking that everybody that meets a defined demographic-based persona could be won over. But I think that's really where, where it's key. They might be able to be won over. But those that are highly unlikely to come to your side of the story, whether it's from marketing side in retail or healthcare or a vote, you could swing everybody if you try hard enough. But most of the cases, the resources or dollars just aren't aren't there to get that return. Yeah, it's interesting. We previously talked about segmented marketing versus billboard marketing, pros of specifically segmented marketing. But while political seems ready to jump in for a narrow audience, it seems that industries outside political aren't as interested, considering the fact that there's slashed marketing efforts and just a desire to connect more one-on-one with the audience. So why do you think there is this reluctance to kind of jump in in this side of marketing? I think some of it's probably historical in nature. Like I just said, that that there's a sense that if everybody looks like our persona, then we should be able to reach them. They should want our product. And, and rightfully so, a, a marketing team and a, a company or healthcare system or whoever it might be really does feel like if we just get the right message to this person, we can swing them, we can win them over. And again, you can, but it's just tough to do. And I think the introduction of predictive modeling has really changed this. And politics was the first to really take that on of what is a likelihood to take an action? What's a likelihood to hold a belief? Those things that become some of the core basis of our strategy matrix. You know, They're just sort of new in- entries in the area outside of politics. People haven't considered that thought. So that, again, history, but probably a good history. That's what people had to work with before. Well, I agree that politics is a really good example to kind of simplify it. But let's move off of politics and look at some predictive model universes that are available and how can we apply the matrix outside of politics. So I'm going to try to jump as far as I can in my mind from politics then. And rather than going to my usual healthcare analogies, maybe we'll go to sort of charitable organizations, right? Let's think the other way. Um, well, people generally are get on edge when you talk about politics. Everybody's willing to help anyone in need, maybe sometimes. <laughs> Let's hope. But in, in the case of a charitable organization, clearly you're working with a very limited marketing budget. They have to be driven to smart decision making this because they just don't have the budget appropriately. So they're trying to take as much of the revenue coming into a charitable group and getting it back out to those in need. So in this instance, I'd say to make it easier, let's start talking about the vertical, you know, the dollar amounts on a Jeopardy board. And that's really somebody's likelihood to provide a donation, 
right? Who is likely to support donations? Who is maybe likely to support a donation specific to different types of cause? And some of that might be through predictive modeling, but other than that come through consumer history. You know, you know who does tend to donate and it's not purely about their finances. So I, would, I do want to take that out here. That's part of the puzzle, but there's plenty of people that donate at a high frequency, but a small dollar amount. However, it's easy for maybe some organizations to say, oh, they have to have an income, household income over $100,000. Well, that's not the case. You know, when you apply a broader thought to this, maybe that's how you might narrow it down later on, but your overhood likely to donate has very little to do with your actual income. Horizontal in this case would be, you know, how does somebody feel about that charity or cause? You know, what is their commitment to it? If it's, you know, for instance, supporting youth education, you know, somebody's willingness to support that is completely different than their willingness to support a religious organization or environmental causes. So you have to think of on that other spectrum, what is their fervor or favorability of a certain type of cause? So when you pull that all together now, rather than other spaces where politics, for instance, where they're all trying to fight over the swing vote, a charitable group might only go to that most likely to support box, if you will, of the grid. The top right corner of the Jeopardy board is where they're going to live right now and say they don't have the finances, the resources to reach to all of these people. So they're going to start with the most likely to be persuaded to help out their organization. And so again, same grid, same matrix, different purpose and different objectives. So you, you just look at the same piece and start differently. You know, this really brings us back to what we've talked about when we say that advertisers are sometimes too reliant on digital data that they already have, because this is actually an example of when you do rely on that data. So I've got to come clean on that. It's the data you have on your customers already that's really going to direct you to how to lay out this matrix and then how to apply it. So all of the information you have is really important. And charities may only be able to afford to look at lookalikes, as you just said. So the data they have is most important. And it just kind of reinforces why it's so important to understand what data does what in terms of your marketing plan. Yeah, exactly. And it's, again, the macro level, let's go back to where we started today, of you've got to develop a big view like this, but the strategy is really where it matters. Knowing who you are, knowing who your potential audience tells you how to use something like this. And that's really the most important part. All right. Well, as long as you offered it up, Tim, about how do you use something like this, I think it's time for a challenge. I recently saw a quote from Business News Daily, which said, Walmart focuses on budget and convenient shoppers, promising everyday low prices to deliver, save money, live better. Although it sells almost everything, it doesn't carry high-end or luxury goods because it isn't what its target customer is looking for in its stores. This shows that just as everyone is not Walmart's customer, everyone is not your customer. So in my mind, that quote really supported what we've talked about so far, but I also always like outside affirmation. So let's get to the challenge. Using Walmart as an example, but let's compare them to Target. How would you approach building a matrix? Tim and Lauren, you're on. <laughs> oh, I like the other episodes where we got to just talk about things we pre-planned. Well, you gotta keep with the times, Tim. I'm gonna keep challenging you. Okay. So Walmart versus Target is the question. And how would we build a matrix that helps Walmart in this instance narrow down its audience? Exactly. Uh, I'm going to steal the start then, Lauren, because because I'm me. Go ahead. Um, and so let's say the, the easy one, I think, would be starting to figure out the, the horizontal, the top categories, if you will. And I think we say, let's put Walmart all the way to the right, Target all the way to the left. Um, that somebody's favorability for these two somewhat similar stores, they do carry similar items. So you would say, 
let's in this instance, put target on our far, or far left, Walmart on the right. And most people, again, are going to be somewhere in between that most people are willing to be persuaded by one or the other, depending on the circumstances. So I think that's where we would start the strategy matrix conversation first. Lauren, did I do okay in round one there? Yes. I th- and you gave me the harder one. So, you know, he's thinking all the time. <laughs> <laughs> So we'd have to try to decide what what are we targeting for? What what are we trying to gain in audience growth? So for instance, we could talk about online shopping specifically. Amazon's probably the number one, but let's say that Target and Walmart both want to at least take some of that pie from Amazon or at least grow their online shopping community. So we could then make the vertical say the likelihood to shop online, either exclusively or just in general. So then we would look at left is target, right is matrix, top is somebody who's a high likely online shopper, down the bottom would be somebody who's very unlikely to be a a online shopper. And and from there, you're right, I guess that would be the big matrix of either one of those companies could actually use that same data set to now figure out who could be targeted by them for an online shopping campaign. And then we would look at the population and start figuring out how do we message them? What what clicks within that? Is there are certain groups that are new parents that maybe we're talking about better for your child or for your newborn? There's other items they're selling that you start narrowing it down. So the messaging specificity starts getting smoother and that's the segmented piece. But this matrix is where you need to figure out who should you be even starting to speak to in the first place. Or even as you said before, who not to speak. Who not so to speak to. Walmart yes. is not going to target the target online <laughs> shoppers. So you easy for you to say. Yes. <laughs> Or even more important, not target the target non-online shoppers. <laughs> shoppers. <laughs> yeah. Right. So there's that whole kind of left side of the matrix that they probably don't need to target. And then arguably the bottom horizontal level, the people who aren't going to online shop at all, or at least when you're targeting them, you have to persuade them not only to shop at Walmart online, but to online shop at all. Wow, Therese, that's a lot of pressure using this with a targeted marketing discussion to include Target and see if we didn't slip ourselves up. Well, you know, I knew you guys would rock it and you did. And I do think it's a great example that you can really take anything and lay it out this way to help you really think about what you need to say to who. And I do think that it's kind of like saying things that didn't work may sometimes educate you more than things that do. I think this whole conversation really about making sure to consider who you don't need to target is really, really important. It just gives you that much more focus on the places that you need to spend your money, the people you need to talk to to grow your business. So I knew you two could stand up to the challenge, which is why Target was so important, just to make it a little bit harder. So thank you for playing with me and sharing another example of fun with data, because there are so many examples all the time. So that wraps up this episode of Connect with Causeway. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. And remember, we want to hear from you. Is there something you wish we would ask about in our monthly survey? Drop us a line and let us know what you're thinking about. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Connect with Causeway. Please subscribe to the podcast and tune in again for our next episode in July. 